This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Dan Shaw Bell is a partner and research director at Future Workplace, an HR advisory and research firm, and the founder of both Millennial Branding and WorkplaceTrends.com. His third business book is called Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. Dan is best-selling author of two previous books, Promote Yourself and Me 2.0. He's conducted dozens of research studies and interviewed over 2,000 of the world's most successful people like Warren Buffett, Anthony Bourdain, Jessica Alba, Will I Am, and Michael Bloomberg. He's been recognized on lists of fascinating high-impact thought leaders like Inks and Forbes's 30 Under 30 and many others. In this episode, we talk about the use and abuse of technology. We explore how technology's promise as a vehicle for connectivity hasn't been fully realized because it paradoxically produces loneliness. Remote workers, for example, are harder to retain because they tend to be less committed to their organizations as a result of their lack of sufficient in-person human contact. We also talk about how technology can be used in good ways to increase efficiency and to help people build communities online, to get support so that they don't feel so isolated. It's been a a very effective tool for people who reach out for help by making themselves vulnerable, sharing their struggles, including those with mental illness. Dan describes some of the practical ideas and tools from his research that are in his book, including the Work Connectivity Index, which is a diagnostic companies use to assess whether and how people do indeed feel isolated and alone. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would rate and review it on iTunes, so others are more likely to find and enjoy it too. All right, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from an expert on what we need to do to get back to human it's Dan Shawbell. Dan, welcome. So happy to be here with you, Stu. We have We've been uh, in touch for a long time. It's probably been a decade. At <laughs> well, it's been a long time, and and we share a fondness, uh, an admiration, and I I think a a strong debt of appreciation for our common literary agent, Jim Levine. So this show, like your book, we're going to dedicate to Jim. How about that, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I saw him last night at my book launch. He's one of my favorite people, hero, a champion of authors, and he's been doing it for 19 years, so he loves what he does. Yeah, truly a remarkable person, and he's uh, he's, he's influenced both of us. So uh, we could just spend the rest of the show talking about 
about Jim Levine's contribu- contributions to the uh, to the business literature, and that would be an interesting conversation. But that's not what people are probably most interested in hearing about. Uh, and so let's let's talk about what you've been uh, writing about and what you have put so well in uh, Back to Human about technology, the double-edged sword that it, that it, that it is for us, and how. Well, it, it can connect us productively to those with whom we work all around the world. It can allow us to work flexibly in terms of location, time. But, of course, it creates an always-on, 24-7 expectation of availability. So what's the biggest idea that came out of your your study, the Virgin Pulse study, in terms of, you know, if we would just start with, like, the, the main message that you want to make sure... Um, readers and our listeners get about the wise use of technology. What is it? So the biggest message in the book is that technology has created the illusion of connection, when in reality, the overuse and misuse of it has led to more isolation and loneliness and lower productivity and engagement. The biggest finding mm-hmm. in the Virgin Pulse study of over 2,000 managers and employees in 10 countries is the dark side of working remote. We've always talked about the light side, which is you get the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how you want. But the dark side was revealed in that a third of the global workforce works remote at least often, yet two-thirds are disengaged. And if you work remote, you're much less likely to want a long-term career your company because you don't have that personal touch and connection. Wait, and say so, that again. If, if you, what, what was that relationship to uh, your willingness working, or interest to stay? Impact, working remote impacts team and organizational commitment. So if you work mm-hmm. remote, you're much less likely to say that you want a long-term career at your company. Hmm. And for those companies, as many are today, uh, who were interested in retaining the best and the brightest, uh, remote work poses a risk, you found. Yeah, it can be a big risk. And you see in the workplace right now, it's like all or nothing, right? It's like Aetna tried to have all the employees work remote, and that didn't work. IBM tried, Reddit, Best Buy, all of these companies have tried, and it's kind of, it's backfired for most, yet a lot of people still have a remote workforce. But if you think about it, if you're not seeing and hearing people for a long period of time, you don't have the same level of connection with them, mm-hmm. like any other relationship. And so... It's much easier to quit a job when you feel like they're just acquaintances or weak connections mm-hmm. rather than friends, especially best friends. Hmm. So so you said the dark side. Can you say more about what that darkness feels like? Well, I'm doing this interview from my apartment right now in New York City. Yeah. I've been, I've been working remote for eight years. And when you're oh. working remote, you do get that freedom and flexibility. Like I could do what I, I could. I feel I could do anything I want. I save on commuting costs. All these great benefits. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if I'm not proactively picking up the phone, if I'm not meeting people for lunch or coffee, if I'm not having actual business meetings in offices, it can be extremely isolating, and you feel really detached, not just from work, but from kind of reality in life. From reality, as in. Uh, hallucinating, uh, or, or uh, yeah, so you know, as, in, as in like we, I think we feel more centered in one with the world when mm-hmm. we're around other people mm-hmm. in, in communication. In, um, you know, if if you have good strong connections, you're naturally healthier and wanting to be more productive and do great things because 
you're around people and our basic human need is to feel love and have friendships. And if we don't have that, we'll never be self-actualized. We'll never be able to bring our best self into the workplace because our brains are too focused on, you know, the lack of connectivity and our feeling of isolation. Love and friendships. There's so many people now talking about how important those those aspects of human experience are uh, for uh, for people today at work. Um, and and so what what have you discovered then through your research and practice about what people can do to try to minimize these risks of you know, succumbing to the dark side? Yeah, well, we found in terms of work friendships globally, 7% of the work workforce has zero friends at work and half have five or fewer. Yet mm-hmm. we spend a third of our lives working. In the United States, we spend an average of 47 hours a week. In the UK, it's about 50 hours. We're always kind of on. Not having your phone is a new vacation. We respond to text and email outside the office on weekends, on vacation. So we're always kind of working. And so if we don't like who we work with, if there's toxic relationships, it doesn't just affect work. It affects our entire life, as you know, with what you've done with work-life integration. And it's chapter one. I talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that what's important is you make time to invest in your in your work relationships. And when you are physically present with a, one of your coworkers, be mentally and emotionally present as well. You know, everyone when they go into business meetings or send an average of five text messages. They're looking down at screens and they're not attentive. And I think that's part of why a lot of meetings are dysfunctional and take too long is because we're not paying attention. And I think if you pay attention, if you show respect to the people in the room, instead of worrying about texts from, you know, family members or friends or worrying about the likes and comments from people you might not even know or like on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, uh, I think you can be more productive and happy and connected to the people you're with. And if you have a good healthy relationship with them. It's going to add a lot to your work experience. I've come up to the conclusion that if you don't like the work you do, but have great supportive coworkers, you will be able to stay with the company longer than if you uh, love what you do, but are in a toxic work environment. Mm-hmm. So the, the human connection really matters. And that's, that's really what you're trying to help people both understand it and do something about. So so let's stay with your example of walking into a meeting and everyone's on their devices. Um, so if that's the norm in your working life, what what can one do to try to change that? The leaders I interviewed, they put their phones in the middle of the table or turn them off. And even outside of the office, you know, at the dining room table, Thanksgiving's coming up, you know, put your phones in the middle of the dining room table so you could actually talk with your children and your spouse, maybe your friends. And there was another leader I interviewed that he and his wife would bring their technology into the bedroom and just look at devices the whole time. And they made a rule. Not very romantic, I would suggest. <laughs> and they made a rule that you can't bring technology into the bedroom. And so it's it's almost like creating mm-hmm. a rule, setting you know, setting um, a good example for the people around you, I think, is really important. But that's and something you have to negotiate with people, right? Because some you can't just walk in and say, "That's it, give me your phone, put it in the put it in the in the middle of the table," and somebody might say, "No, no, no, I, I'm expecting an important message, or you, you don't want me to do that because our biggest client is about to text me, and I can't not be immediately responsive." Uh, so, so 
just you know dealing with those realities what do you what have you found has been most effective in terms of explaining why i think mm-hmm. just telling someone something is one thing but mm-hmm. explaining them why it matters and how it will improve your relationships is something completely different right mm-hmm. so i think that as long as people understand why whether it's why they're doing what they're doing at work mm-hmm. you know giving them purpose or even outside of work explaining that hey it's important i, w- I really want to make sure that we you know, catch up and, and really see what's going on in our lives, then they're more likely to do it because there's a reason behind it and you show you care by communicating why you're you're acting like that or, or want that behavior mm-hmm. to occur. I have a good example, Dan. When uh, I start my classes at Wharton and, you know, the MBA undergrad, executive MBA program, I have a no digital policy. And I, I don't just say no digital devices. I say, here's, here's my preference, and here's why I think it's, it's going to be helpful for you and for our learning community that we're trying to build here. Um, what thoughts do you have about that? And so, you know, I hear their concerns. We make, you know, adjustments as we need to. Um, so it's not, it's not a rigid policy, but I explain that, you know, and I've had you know quite a bit of experience doing this now for the last few years, um, as it's emerged as a as a need that me and many of my colleagues do um, to to ensure that people are are as you say attentive. And what's what's really helpful I have found is just what you were saying that there is a kind of uh, conversation that's based on a rationale that is about the collective interest. Why are we here? Why would it be helpful for us to be fully attentive to each other here in the room? And uh, almost everyone is uh, enthusiastic about it. Yeah, and they should be because everyone benefits from it, even if they don't think it in the moment when they experience it, when, they, when they're fully present, when they're able to talk and express themselves because you know most communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get to really know each other and develop a better relationship. Like our relationship is better because we're talking like our, you know, most of our prior relationship was through email. Right? We've, we've never had a, fo- a voice to voice conversation. Totally. And that changes everything. And then uh, in person changes it even more. Yeah, you and, sound better than you write, actually, in terms of oh, emails. I don't mean your book. Your book is very <laughs> readable and very accessible. And I really like it. But uh, I mean, just, you know, the it's, you know, you, you discover a whole new dimension of another person's personality right when you're actually speaking to them yeah and i mean early in my career was mostly digital relationships as an introvert it was just easy for me to reach out Mm -hmm. uh, via email versus pick up the phone i was very uncomfortable with that especially because my first internship in high school i had to cold call a thousand people to try and sell them phone auditing services and i didn't make any sales and i felt so uncomfortable doing it so that's part part of why I've really got good at marketing and promotion because I saw that as the best route, knowing that I didn't want a cold call to build a business. And hmm. and then just overall, later in life, in the past several years, I've established more human relationships, practicing what I preach, calling, you know, setting up meetings, really doing a lot more in person. And mm-hmm. especially, as you know, working with big companies, you know, email and a text message is not going to lock that deal in or build a relationship with the Fortune 500 elite. Well, especially old folks, right? I mean, if it's with your peers and as your peers who are more you know, digitally native because you're, you're in a different generation uh, or two removed from where I am. And I know that 
uh, you know, there are different norms and expectations for how people communicate if you're, you know, 30 or 35 than if you're 65. So um, do you think that's going to be changing as, you know, the, you know, the next generation rises to positions of uh, decision-making power? Yeah, a few interesting things with this. I don't know if there was a study that came out recently that showed that teenagers is the first age group that would rather text than have an in-person conversation. Because mm-hmm. in my research, we've interviewed people from 22 to 36, and they all would rather have an in-person conversation, but teenagers are resisting that. They default right to the text message. The other thing is interesting. Cigna did a study of 20,000 adults that found you know, half of Americans are lonely, 40% lack meaningful relationships. But when asked, like in terms of generation, uh, while you would think that senior citizens were the loneliest, it was actually younger people. So, Dan, um, I'd like to stay on the on the subject of uh, you know the 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 costs of of loneliness and, and isolation and and the very distressing uh, research finding that you just reported about how the youngest generation are the loneliest. Say more about what that means for our future and what can be done about it. It's an indication that these teenagers are going to bring the same habits into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And with all these different generations, there could be disruption because if their preference is texting, whereas other people would rather have face-to-face or maybe even use video conferencing Mm -hmm. or pick up the phone and they don't want to and resist that, there's going to be friction which is, is bad for collaboration and mutual understanding and can really hurt everyone. So I think, I think that things are really going to change, and especially with like all these new technologies like virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence. Like There's so much disruption, and then there's so many different preferences that it could really distract people, it could complicate mm. relationships and, and be bad, but it could also be a good thing. I think the good thing about technology is it's flattened corporate hierarchies, getting everyone kind of on the same page using the same tools. But I think there's a danger of just over-relying on these tools. We tap our phones over 2,600 times a day. We look at our phones every 12 minutes. The technology is, has been built to get us addicted. It's the business model of the big tech firms. And so I think- Which are now suffering as a result of the exposure of that idea. Yeah, and it's interesting because all the tech billionaires, they don't let their yes. sons and daughters use the technology. Well, I mean, that's, you know, we, we can laugh about that, that but it's, it's, uh, it's almost villainous when you, when you discover the, you know, the duplicity of, uh, or at least, you know, the, uh, um, the, the hypocrisy of, you know, people building systems that are truly addictive and then, um, of course, you know, protecting their own from that suffering from that addiction. What's what's your view on that? Yeah, I think there's a there's an inherent responsibility. I mean, look what Apple just did with their latest update, where it tracks your use of the apps. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's other apps that do that too. There's, I mean, there's a web app called Rescue Time, and I think it's important because the more time we spend looking at a device, the less time we spend actually being human and, and connecting with someone on a, a personal level. And if you, aren't get, if you aren't using your social skills on a regular basis, mm-hmm. then the next time you actually talk to someone, you're going to feel awkward. They and atrophy. That, the sk- it's skills, things. right? You have to be able to learn how to respond to people uh, in, in, a real, in a real-time way unless, 
unless human to human conversation, you know, goes the way of, uh, I don't know, earlier technologies that are no longer being used. What do you think? Yeah, it's just going to happen more and more. We found in the study that about half of someone's work day is being used with technology over human interaction. The biggest Mm. thing that gets in the way of human interaction at work is email. To no surprise, we're sending enormous Mm -hmm. amounts of email. Mm -hmm. And yet a study in the Harvard Business Review found that one face-to-face conversation is more successful than 34 emails exchanged back and forth. So instead of going back and forth and hoping someone understands what you mean, you know, you can pick up the phone or walk a few steps yep. to their cubicle or office and, and tell them, you know, how to act, how to respond, and, and uh, what the, the message you're trying to get across. I do that all the time. I think this conversation is too complicated for email. Can we find a time to chat? I do that all the time. And, of course, it's always more efficient. I know. And especially when I'm trying to convey things, if, if I'm having it, here's a signal. If I am having trouble conveying things through email as I'm typing it, I immediately pick up the phone. That's a good, uh, That's a good a diagnostic. Now, I, we didn't close the loop, though, on the question I asked you earlier, so I want to get back to it, and that is what to do about the digital natives who are you know, losing the capacity for social exchange because they are not practiced in it and because they feel somehow, I don't know, easier, safer, uh, communicating by text rather than speaking to another person by phone or in person. What, what is your prescription for that, or do you have one, Dan, based on what you've discovered in your research and practice? I think what everything comes down to is awareness. Mm. That's why there's like quizzes in the book. It's, it's realizing that you have a problem and how it's affecting you, uh, not just professionally but personally in your health. Like there was a crazy study that found that about half of Americans would rather break a bone than their phone. Yeah, I saw that in your book. So the more they realize their addiction, the more they see mm-hmm. how much time they're spending on the apps, mm-hmm. using Apple or, or another rescue time or something else. Uh, that awareness is the first step in, in allowing them and making them understand that they need to change. And and then I think it's not not demonizing technology, not saying it's bad, mm-hmm. but it's really about use cases, like texting someone that a meeting is going to start in three minutes just to make sure that they arrive is fine. But if there's an argument, that shouldn't be handle, handled via text or email. Like anything emotional needs to be done yep. in a very intimate way. That, that's and my so, signal. Whenever I feel like there's, it's getting emotionally you know, warm or hot, bingo. Get off the email. Get off uh, the thin medium, as the communications theorists call it, of of you know the written word, and get voice to voice as quickly as you can. Yeah, and if you blast someone for, in an email, they can forward that to other people, and mm-hmm. they have a record of it. It's just it's not going to help you in any way. So I think it's really explaining how, what, when, and where to use it, and and provide examples can be very helpful, and then to allow them to use the technology to realize where they're spending time and how they could better allocate their time. And then the importance of human to human connection. Like it's interesting. A lot of them realize, you know, more and more people living at home, fewer driver's licenses issued, like it's all Hmm. happening. Hmm. And I think that the more they realize it because they all have these needs to connect yet are isolating themselves. um, The more you have to come in and say, yes, this is a problem. We, we understand and empathize with you. And if we want to create a more socialized workforce, then you need to be participating in this and 
and getting face-to-face time. And, and I think based on the research is you need some time alone and some time collaborating mm-hmm. with a team. So, you know, enabling them to be introverted and if they are and, and have that time to be focused, but also creating a culture where it's safe to share ideas and collaborate so that they feel like they belong. Like the four employee you know, engagement factors captured in the book are really important. It's belonging, it's trust, it's happiness and purpose. And so once those four are activated, then you can layer on the technology after that because people feel comfortable. They'll use the tools for different reasons. They'll mm-hmm. understand the importance of connecting. They'll trust their leader. So all of those combined are really powerful. And if they don't exist, then you're not going to hold on to these people for very long. But let's get back to uh, the teenagers and because they're pre-workforce and that, you know, they're learning how to communicate or not. Uh, you know, before they before they enter the workforce, what should parents be doing? The schools uh, that are educating our youth, what's the best practice in terms of how to uh, help young people discover, you know, the the importance of uh, having a broad and sort of consciously chosen array of communication uh, media so that they are making smart choices. Yeah, I think it's being a role model yourself. That's Mm -hmm. one of the best ways. Uh, So when they come home, it starts with home, right? So if if they're living with you, let's say, a lot more people are living, you know, even when they graduate school, living with their parents. And I think that's when you be a good role model. You show this is what we're doing. You know, we're not using technology. We're connecting. We're sharing know what's going on with their lives and days and if they see that those type of interactions people model other people's interactions Mm -hmm. but if they see that in the dining room table you're texting your husband or wife is texting they're going to mimic that so it's it's really being a good role model and it happens in the workplace too Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but at the same time you want to give them their personal space to use the technology like work-life integration like you know if they want to do a few personal things at work we should let them do that because they're probably going to answer emails and do stuff outside of the office that's work-related. So, Dan, tell us, uh, you've got a, a number of really helpful uh, tools in Back to Human. What's the Work Connectivity Index and how can people use it? Yeah, I, I worked with Professor Kevin Rockman of George Mason University School of Business on creating an instrument known as Work Connectivity Index, a free self-assessment you can take at workconnectivityindex.com. It measures the strength of your work relationships, so you can take it and take it with your team as well to see what people's connectivity score is. And if they have a low connectivity score, score it means that they need a little bit more attention because mm. if they have a low score, it means their relationships are weaker, they're not getting enough attention, therefore they're more likely to quit. Hmm. So, oh, so it's about retention. That's the, is that the main sort of driver? I think from a business perspective, mm-hmm. the book really focuses on solving the retention issue and incre- by increasing engagement uh, with employees regardless of wherever they are. So I, I think mm-hmm. proximity is really important, but you can be isolated anywhere. You can be isolated like me. I was working for EMC back in the day, and I would always get lunch at my desk. Wait, what's EMC and, for listeners who might not know? 
Yep, EMC, now EMC Dow, big storage technology company mm-hmm. located in Hoppington, Massachusetts. And I would I would be very isolated yet around so many people in the PR group. And yeah, had I known the importance of socialization and what that would have done for me personally and for my career, that could have really helped. Just hmm. having lunch with a coworker, getting coffee, having my manager maybe introduce me to someone new, like... So I think those, that socialization is really important. It always will be. I think that if you are seen and heard, you are more likely to get promoted and advance in your career. And that's why I think people who work at a corporate office and see their manager regularly have a big advantage, mm-hmm. uh, whether we like to admit it or not. And so, I, But I also think leaders should embrace remote workers and make sure that they feel like they're part of it. So one of the leaders I interviewed, uh, what she does is she let, lets remote workers lead the meetings, making them feel like they're kind of in charge and that they could you be mean, at, well, the, at the corporation. F- through through the, the conference call or the video conference? Exactly. They get to take charge, set the agenda, and, hmm. and, uh, and lead the meeting, which I think is really interesting. And the other leader that I interviewed, she has a budget and will travel to all the remote sites every year to talk to all mm-hmm. of her colleagues. Mm-hmm. And a lot of leaders won't do that. A lot of leaders don't think they need to do that or... It's too much effort. It's kind of a pain. It is. Making that in, it making is a that pain. Invest, <laughs> making that investment in those relationships is important because otherwise, if you're not doing that, then she has to spend that time and more trying to find replacements for those employees. So is it just a matter of exposure to other humans in a physical, you know, in physical proximity or, or is there more that you learned about through your own personal experience and that the you know, leading or most progressive companies are doing to help people learn, especially those who are introverted or who have not had a lot of you know, training or exposure to social situations beyond texting or Instagram. Are, are, there, are there initiatives underway or just experiences that you've had that have helped you um, be a, a good guide to... Uh, companies that are trying to help their uh, especially socially awkward young people to uh, to develop uh, the kinds of uh, social skills that are needed to, to to create basic human connections that that are meaningful and useful and keep people you know engaged and and uh, committed to their organizations. Yeah, we ask employees that, and they said that. Mm-hmm the best way to create a more socialized work environment is through team building activities, social events, and workations. Workations being taking your team to a different city, maybe even a different country. And when you, when you take people outside of the typical standard office, they're more likely to open up. I think that's why Amazon has that the Amazon rainforest in Seattle where you can go, there's a thousand different types of plants and you can just meet there and it's different than a typical office. Like you feel kind of refreshed, it's it's exciting and therefore you're more likely to be positive and open up and I think people want to bring their full self into the workplace and be who they are and if you have a trusting environment that uh, feels good and, and different and uh, allows you to be who you are, you're just going to be more successful overall. And I think between that and then what I've learned is use technology as a bridge to human interaction. Don't let it be a barrier. So hmm. I think all this, I what think does what that I've mean? learned is all of these connections that I've developed 
have been good. It's a, it's a good starting point, but try and meet people offline. And mm-hmm. in the workplace, you can let the technology like artificial intelligence remove the work you don't even want to do to set up a conference call, for instance, or to, you know, set up a networking event, all hands meeting. But when you're there, you should be present. So I think the technology can lead you to the human interaction. And then I also think that technology can make us a little bit more human, but that the overuse and misuse of it is when it's a problem. And using it case by case is really important because while it can eliminate tasks, it could also get in the way of your productivity if you just are using it all the time. How can it make us more human? What did you mean by that? Well, because I think that people are living more public lives now, whether it's online, social media, uh, through the technology, and so uh, people are becoming a little bit more mindful of what they're saying and how they're coming off. I mean, everyone is their best PR, you know, self right now. They're not putting out anything negative. Like I think in the book, I say, uh, the more baby pictures you post, the more broken your marriage is. <laughs> is is there an inverse correlation between number of baby pictures posted and the quality of your marital relationship? Is, is that true? I, 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 it's not. It's a hypothesis. So I think it's like a joke in the book. But I think the point is that everyone's trying to cover up for issues that are happening by only posting the positive. Well, that's what leads and to the, the sense of alienation, right? And 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 loneliness that you have to present yourself in a way that's false, and that of course distances yourself from yourself. Yeah, and then everyone's trying to compare themselves to everyone else as well, and one upping mm-hmm. each other, which isn't how. Uh, which isn't healthy, but I think that, you know, if you are authentic, if you are yourself and they're not doing that, then you can present yourself in a meaningful way, in a human way through the technology. It's it's really on the user, it's on the person to make that decision so of how to use it. Are we seeing that? Are, are people expressing more of their failures, their vulnerabilities, their needs, the ways so in which... So much more. It's unbelievable. I mean, think about how many people, I don't know if you know, you've seen on Facebook or the other social networks you're on, that are coming out and like I even did, I came out as, you know, having anxiety and I got like 185 comments when I did that. And it took me a while to do it, but I did it. And, and because I've seen some of my other peers do it and that created some freedom for me to to also Hmm. do the same thing. So I I'm seeing that more and more like every day I'm seeing people come out saying, you know, I had this problem and now this is where I'm at. And, and kind of be a champion for other people mm-hmm. in different, you know, communities, mental health communities. And I think it's been positive. And, and I don't know if it was like that 10 years ago, but certainly mm-hmm. with all the celebrities coming out, like Ryan Reynolds coming out with anxiety issues, Mariah Carey saying she was bipolar. So I think that's creating some open free space so that people are more comfortable coming out and being who they are and talking about things that are very personal. Well, and getting support, too, and 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 realizing that you're not alone. alone. They don't want to feel like alone. So technology can isolate you, or or you can feel like you're part of this global community or local community because Hmm. people like you are also struggling, and if they're vulnerable, if they're honest, then that's a good thing. Can you, know, you do it, that at work, it, though? It, I, 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 there's got to be some... But like you are saying, though, if people only talk about the good, that's not real. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, back to the workplace, how does, you know, exposing, you know, those, those vulnerabilities, those, those human frailties that all of us have, um, there's still stigma in the workplace. Um, I know that it's, that it's is changing. Right, it's, it's changing. Yeah. So... 
So what, if, we, if you're willing, I'd like to hear more about what you did specifically and, and how your own sort of uh, self-disclosure affected your, well, your career. Um, can, you, can you talk about that? Yeah. So this is really interesting. Uh, so I learned how to become vulnerable because I would go on first dates and realize on those first dates that I would never see that other person again. It wasn't a good fit. And so I tested out being vulnerable. I would say, Hey, you know, I've been bullied when I was younger and I suffer from anxiety. I would drop all of that. Um, knowing that I'd never see him again. So to me, it wouldn't matter. And over time, over a few dates, I got more comfortable and now I'm more open to talking about it. So it was a process and me trying to figure out the best way for me personally to be able to speak openly about what I've been through. And but that's over a dinner table face-to-face, right? Correct, but then it became online because I posted on Instagram several months ago. What did you say and, and what happened? No, I just did, you know, I did kind of a analysis of why I am the way I am and, hmm. and why, you know, I eat fast because of anxiety, why I'm quick to respond to the emails or texts or calls because of anxiety. I kind of broke down why I am well, the way I am. Mm-hmm. And because of that, people more or less understand me better now, which is so important. I don't feel like I was misunderstood growing up, but because I revealed so much, people kind of embraced me and were, and then a lot of other people came out in the comments saying, yeah, I suffer too. And, and so you don't feel like you're alone and you mm-hmm. feel like you're the community's embracing you and then everyone everyone has issues so everyone, everyone. comes out with different different problems that they have and that's why mm-hmm. in today's workplace we have to have empathetic leaders mm. because people are bringing their full self into the workplace whether you want it want it or not and while you might not see a physical injury mentally that they, they could be suffering and you have to embrace them it's the reason why you know, about a year ago uh, one employee had come out saying that she needed a mental health day and her manager uh, was all for it, you know, gave her that time off and that, that post went viral and yeah. everyone went crazy about it and they went crazy about it because everyone feels that way. Everyone feels of course. on of the course. employee side that you, you, we need some time off. We're working so many hours, we're suffering. And then on the manager side, wow, this manager let up and, and let this person. Well, you, you should see what, off. uh, Robbins, the CEO at Cisco just posted yesterday, uh, an email to 75,000 employees worldwide at Cisco, um, that has been lauded by, by many, uh, as a, as an exemplar for, uh, embracing people who have mental illness and, and helping them. Uh, so that is becoming more common uh, I recall having written a piece in the Harvard Business Review in 2009 about my own experience having uh, one of my kids uh, suffering from mental illness and what that was like and how how it affected you know my work life and and citing some evidence for how mental illness is a kind of hidden cost to the people who have to care for uh, dependents with mental illness. What that you know, the toll that that can take. And I got the most uh, powerful uh, response to, you know, the the 50 plus articles I've posted at harvardbusinessreview.org over these last 10 years. I think that was the most, um, the most potent one because uh, it, just as you, your story illustrates, it, it shows uh, 
it breaks through the, the, the wall or the mask, right, and, and allows other people to, to tell their story. And that's, that's such an important thing for us to be doing. And, and I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about this theme, and I appreciate, Dan, you're telling us your story, uh, because it's illustrative of how when you are genuine and how you can use technology to be real, you can really generate uh, a community of support. Uh, so so what's what's been the consequence of that for you? Honestly, there's been no consequence. I, I meant no positive, one. or I, I was thinking positive, you know, upshot, you know, that, that it was helpful to you, but... Yeah, yeah I but, think it's, li- it's liberating. That's what it feels like. It feels liberating, and then it, it's it's guiding, you know, my future work, right? It's like, wow, I have a very empowering story about anxiety and how anxiety, mm-hmm. like technology, is a double-edged sword. Mm. Guess what? Technology drives anxiety. <laughs> People feel more anxious because of technology and uh, you know oh what's mm-hmm. the next alert what's the next tweet what's the next facebook how many people have liked this how many people have commented so it kind of drives you crazy and makes you more anxious so how so do I'm, you deal I'm, with that I'm, and what I'm, advice I'm, do you give to people about that what advice uh, again what i do is i think okay well i know if i want to have close friends if i want to have for instance yes last night a lot of people show up to my book launch mm-hmm. that i have to invest in people whether you're in the workplace or at home it's I need to invest in people. And the, the way I look at it is I know that after the age of 25, you start losing more friends. If you talk to people who are mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, 90s, they have fewer, closer friends. Mm-hmm. So now I think about interactions and who I'm working with and who, who I'm good friends with is who do I want to be friends with when I'm older? And mm-hmm. I start to invest more in those people. Mm, that's and, smart, uh, Dan. That's a good thing to do. I'm glad you're doing that. I think that. about health, too. Okay. I think it's with health, too. I, I mm-hmm. see that my dad doesn't eat you know, well, and, and, uh, he won't change, right? He's 75. So I'm like, huh, well, if I eat healthy now at 35, then I don't really need to change much at 75. So it's, <laughs> it's knowing, it's knowing how the story is going to healthy play out. habits. That's and, good, Dan. And, and creating the right habits now so that it's easier to maintain them because of course. changing habits when you're older, I assume is much harder. Well, that's a good assumption. It's not impossible, but I'm, I'm modeling after the people yes. in my life. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, we only have a couple more minutes here, Dan, and I, I still have about another 20 questions. Um, what's, what's the most important piece of advice that you want to ensure listeners know that comes out of uh, your research and, and what you write about so well in, in Back to Human? It's really making time for people, making time for your teammates, making time for family and friends, it's carving out that time. And if we look at our calendars and we say things like, if it's not on our calendar, it doesn't exist, we live and die by our calendar, then we have to make time in our calendar to call our parents, to have coffee with a teammate, to have a conference call or video conference call. And so we we need to build in these interactions into our work day so that Mm -hmm. we are able to fully maximize our personal and professional lives. What you call uh, the experience renaissance. Great term. What is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, experience renaissance is technology, you know, has pushed us to be more human in this way. It's like there's now adult day camps, there's yoga retreats, there's meditation classes, there's big festivals. It's because we're, as we use more and more technology, it forces us to, to continue to get out there. Like we have no choice because... You know, we need other people in order to exist. We need to 
you know, reach out and, and be with people in order to feel fully alive. And so I think that the technology is pushing it out of us. We did a study of 25,000 employees with Polycom last year and found that that technology is making people want to pick up the phone more because they still have the basic human needs. There's things that don't change in our world, right? You're born, you die, you pay taxes, there's 24 hours in a day, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And those needs have to be met regardless of, you know, how many robots take so many, how many jobs, right? That doesn't matter. We still need to do that. And I think that if we want to be relevant, if we want to, uh, you know, if, if you work like a robot, you'll be replaced by a robot. If we want to be relevant, then then we have to continue to lean into what makes us human. So I have a question that I've been asking all of my guests this year because I want to emphasize this theme, um, and that is about compassion. So, Dan, how do you bring compassion to your working life? I think I bring compassion because... I understand that people are different, and while we have basic human needs, people are struggling in various ways, and so I'm mm-hmm. more patient with people because I don't know what happened this morning. I don't know what they've been through, mm-hmm. and typically the people who are the most frustrated and vocal that you see are in the most pain or have been through a lot of trauma, and so knowing that I've been through a lot uh, you know, just try and empathize and relate to them and show compassion because we're all in this together and we should be kind and treat each other with respect. That's a powerful message. Dan, um, how can listeners find out more about, well, both your book, Back to Human, and, and the other great projects you're working on? You can go to danshawbell.com. It's D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L.com. Uh, you can also... Listen to the new podcast, Five Questions with Dan Bell, or look at any of the research that, that we're publishing every year on WorkplaceTrends.com. Awesome. Dan, I, I appreciate your um, t- talking with me tonight, especially about your own story and about the wonderful book that you've produced here. Uh, it's, it's a really important topic, and you've got some great ideas, really practical uh, research-based ideas for what people can do to well, to be more human, and, and it's certainly something that uh, we, we need. So thanks for the work, and thanks for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Catch up soon. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan Shaw Bell and that it provoked your thinking about how, when, and why you use digital technology instead of the richer means of communication available to you, voice-to-voice, video, or in person. So here is an invitation, a challenge for you. Consider taking some small step toward being more mindful, aware of how you use technology, whether at home or at work or with friends, and specifically, what you can do to create more meaningful person-to-person connections with technology as a bridge to such experiences. Let me know if you try this or what other ideas might have occurred to you while listening to my conversation with Dan Shawbell. I would love to hear from you. 
so you can just get in touch with me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.